0: As Tina said, he loved us with an unconditional love. He didn't wait for us to get into the right condition. It's the fact that he loved us that puts us in the right condition. We are, we are sinners who are saved only by his grace and his works. And it's such a reminder we love him because he first loved us. And while we were yet sinners, while we were yet offenders, while we were yet criminals against God, he loved us. And he declared us righteous and we are thankful for him and his goodness. Happy birthday, Tina. Happy birthday, Tina. That's how you sing when it's your birthday right there. (laughs) We are grateful to the Lord to be back in the house of the Lord. We are grateful as well to have gotten all the way to Acts 27 as we're coming up on 2 years in the book of acts we are in the uh, final the the chapter before the final chapter so we have been on a journey and um i think if you've noticed anything about this journey is it has come really at the perfect time during this time of the church where we've seen all the things that the church the early church endured we've seen all the ups and downs and the twists and turns and the hills and the valleys the gains and losses we've seen what in many ways the epitome of the Christian life is like in our time in Acts, it is, as the old folks would say, it is us coming up the rough side of the mountain. That is oftentimes what the Christian life feels like. It feels like we are constantly climbing this hill um, with many obstacles and, and valleys, even in, on, on the hill. And we are hoping that we're going to reach this destination, this trajectory that we're heading on. I've been having conversations um, with our seniors at the school, and one of the things that I've tried to get them to see is that as they're working on understanding the sovereignty of God, they're writing papers on the sovereignty of God. One of the things I wanted them to be able to grasp is that God not only causes in our lives the things that happens, but in his faithfulness, he also uses the things that happen in our lives, but he uses those things for our good. Now, it is common knowledge, I think probably common knowledge, but we do forget, even though we are going through things in our lives, that everything that happens in our life, everything that we go through in our life, it happens with purpose. It happens with intent. It happens with great cause and necessity and that originates at no one else but god now when we read about this let me remind you um, as we read these texts that these are not prescriptive texts meaning they are not telling us what to do they are not telling us what will happen in our lives but rather they are describing these events they're describing to us and for us what was happening And it's not that we can learn more about Paul It's not even that we can learn more about ourselves as we read these things. It's so that we can learn more about God. Whenever I read scripture, whenever you read scripture, there is no need to interject yourself into it, because what all scripture is doing is actually telling us about God. And so when we read these things. We need to remember some things that God may be teaching us about who he is what are some of the things that we're going to be able to learn today and some of the things that we've learned in our study in the book of Acts Well, one one of the things that we're going to learn today is that storms are a when not an if storms are a when, not an if when storms are going to occur in our lives not if storms are going to occur in our lives number two they destroy our places of safety The places that we nestle down, the places of our comfort, storms come up and they disrupt that. They disrupt our comfort and sometimes they even disrupt our idols. And then three, they they make us trust God. And that's ultimately the point of anything that we're going to endure. So turn with me, if you will. This week we're in Acts chapter 27, the last before the last. Acts chapter 27. We'll start at verse number one. It says, and when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship of Adarmenium, which was about to sail the ports along the coast of Asia. We put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Anidas, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther we sailed under the lee of crete of Salmone. coasting along it with difficulty we came to the place called fair havens near which was the city of lycia since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. Facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kuta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the on the citrus, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incur this injury and loss. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that is coming to us today, God. Lord, we um, don't rely on false hope and false truths when we think about how you have created and caused different things to happen in our lives. God, we are securing ourselves to you, our only hope god help us see that when not if but when we go through things and trials and tribulations and storms that we will learn more about you in those times more about your goodness more about your grace more about your mercy more about who you are in jesus name we pray amen so let's set the stage here because i know it's been a while since we've been in acts if you remember from the last time we talked in acts Paul has now been before some of the major political players in the area. We know that he had been before Felix, the governor. We even know that his wife, Drusilla, was brought into that conversation. He was then left in prison and he was before the replacement of Felix, a man named Festus, who then left him in prison again. He was there for two years and Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, and his sister, Bernice came to him and that was when he made his final appeal and said that i want to go and allow caesar to hear my case so what we actually see here is that paul is now being set on his journey to rome because he's made this appeal that he wants caesar himself to hear his case notice that luke is included here though As he writes this, he's again saying that we should set sail and he says we. So we are either again looking at an itinerant encounter where he is using the the accounts of Paul or he was specifically there himself. And I think that here the latter is the case. Again, he mentions the specifics of all those who were present. There is a man of the cohort who's actually of Caesar's cohort who is supposed to be responsible for them. And that's a man named Julius. They have with them as well. Aristarchus. He mentions that even though Paul was a prisoner, he had actually been treated kindly, so kindly that he's able to go back and forth as they make their various stops. And if there are his friends there, he's actually able to stop and be treated well and cared for by his friends. So it is very likely that they know for a fact that Paul is not a typical prisoner. They actually probably know that Paul isn't even guilty. The reason we know this is because the parting words that Herod gives him is, though you seem to have lost your mind with your great learning, Paul. I don't think there's anything that you're guilty of, but you have appealed to Caesar. Therefore, you must go to Caesar. And so the fact that they are making him travel with the other prisoners on this boat is a bit of a formality. But we don't see that anybody else is getting the treatment that Paul is getting. Now, as they were selling, you have to remember that from where they were to get to Italy is a multi hundred mile journey. And it becomes clear at some of these stops that they were selling either outside or near outside the proper selling time. The reason we know that is that some of the facts were given. It mentions that they're on a fast. This specific fast would have happened towards the end of the fall, which is the worst time to be selling in that time. But it also mentions when they started to sell along the coast that they wanted to get where they were going before the winter occurred. So we know that they are actually probably at sea at the least ideal time to be selling. Yet here they are. Luke keeps mentioning as well that they are having a difficult time. As it appears that they are often selling against and into the winds, they're hitting resistance. He says that when they got to Nidus, that the winds were extremely strong there. Now Nidus itself, just Nidus alone, was a hundred thirty-mile journey, and so they see quickly that they can't go that way. So they have to reduce their speed and then they have to take another course. Now, when they left from Alexandria to get to Rome on a journey that normally took 13 days, if you went about six miles per hour. But with these kind of winds, with these kind of delays and the fact that they had to reduce their speed, this journey could end up taking them 45 days when it was intended to take them 13 because they're getting a lot of resistance. Because of these winds, they end up having to go off course several times and they pass through the shelter of Crete off Salmonet. Eventually they come to Fair Storms, as I just mentioned, are not a matter of if. Storms are a matter of when. So what are we to learn here? Are we to learn the singular impact of storms on the life of Paul's journey? No. Are we just to learn what we're to do in stones? No. What are we supposed to learn here? What's the ultimate lesson that's being taught? It's the lesson that we've been admonished to learn before all throughout our time in Acts. God is Lord even over the seas. This is the exact same thing that we learned when we saw the disciples stressing out and and freaking out because they're on this ship and there are these storms. And on the ship with them is Jesus, who is asleep. And as the storm is raging, they go to him, they wake him up. And as the King James old English dramatically states, care is not that we perish. Have we ever really thought about how offensive of a question that must have been? I know it's one of those things that we just know is in Scripture, but I don't think we actually process. They have Jesus there on the boat and they go to him and say, do you not care that we're dying? There is a storm raging. It's an incredibly offensive question. In fact, it's offensive because they would have known that in the Psalms, David says, Who am I that God is mindful of me or that the son of man visits me? Here they have Jesus on the boat, but he's not just on the boat. He's visiting them. He is down in the boat with them. Yet they question whether or not he even cares about them. Now, this is interesting about David's perspective. David didn't wonder if God cared. David wondered why God would care. He looks at the great creation of God. He looks at the heavens, the stars. He sees everything that God has created. And he goes, you've made all of this with just your fingertips. Who am I that you are mindful of me? Who am I that you could even put your eyes on me that you could fix? How are you the God that sits high and looks low? I don't understand that. So he understands the the vastness of who God is, and it makes him question, why would you even visit me? Yet here the disciples, very much like us, with Jesus in the ship, for those of us who are believers, with Jesus within us, his spirit within us. And we say, do you even care that we're in this storm, God? And then he wakes up when they're in the boat. He calms the seas to which now they say, what manner of man is this that even the seas obey him? Now, in this case, in their case, the storm was calm. The seas were made to obey the sovereignty and the everlasting control of Jesus. Jesus ordered that the seas would have to be obedient. But I want you to see something here. I want you to see that God isn't just sovereign over the storm, but God even more so is sovereign over the cause of the storm. He is sovereign even over the effect of the storm. And ultimately, he is sovereign over the result of the storm. God isn't just sovereign over the end. He is also sovereign over the means as well. What do I mean by that? If I come to y'all and I say, you know, in 10 weeks, I'll be 50 pounds lighter, which, you know, would be a considerable amount of weight to lose in 10 weeks. Then there has to be a means for me to come to that end. Right. There has to be some method in between. Like there has to be a means for me to say it's like I'm going to lose 50 pounds. Therefore, I will eat like this and I will work out like this. Such is the case in our relationship with God. If God has promised, as you know, in scripture to complete the work that he has began in us, if he has promised that he is conforming us to his image, then he isn't just the God of that end, is he? He is also the God of the means for conforming us to his image. He is also the God of the means for completing that work in us. The hymn, my favorite hymn, It Is Well, is known for its vivid descriptions of the tempestuous sea. When sorrows, as it says, like sea billows roll. But have you ever found out why he wrote that hymn? Do you know why that hymn is so significant? Because in his life, that wasn't a metaphor. That was the reality. Because if you didn't know, he lost his wife and his daughters to the sea. And he comes and he says, when sorrows like sea billows roll, I have decided whatever my lot, It is well with my soul. Now, the reason that is, is not just that it was well with the situation, but he actually had to be well with the God who caused the situation in the first place. Luke notes here that in great detail that there is a fierceness from this storm, so much so that they even try to anchor themselves, but it's not enough. Because they were being tossed everywhere. There is one final attempt by the people on that boat to bring stability, and that leads them to throwing over everything. They threw cargo over, even the tackle overboard. Then it says, when none of those things worked, they were resolved to the fact that they were probably going to die. Is that when they had not seen the sun, when they had not seen the stars, when they had not seen the moon for several days, they had come to grips with the fact that we're probably about to perish. Listen. Every single one of us has been there. Every single one of us has been to that point. No, I don't mean literally on that ship. I don't mean literally on a boat in a storm. But we have all felt like we were being tossed around. We have all felt like no matter how we try to resolve a situation or anchor ourselves to our idols, that it was not changing what happened. In those moments, we have probably felt safe to assume that we were fighting against Satan, that we were fighting against the enemy and that the resistance that we felt was Satan trying to block us. But did we ever consider that the thing that we were fighting against was sovereignly and providentially ordained by God? Why is that important? Because it helps us know where our faith should be placed. Paul tells them, based on his experience of the sea and the fact that it was this time of year, that the way things looked, they would likely die because of that storm. So when things get bad, he says, I told you that this was a bad idea. I told you we shouldn't have come here. It is interesting, though, because when I look at this, When I look at Paul's response, when I look at Paul assessing, assessing the situation based on what he knew, based on his reality, he says there's probably going to be great loss for us in the ship. He doesn't make me feel bad. This is an apostle here fearing for his life because he sees what is happening and he isn't basing what he says off of any kind of revelation yet. He's basing off what he sees. He is speaking from his heart and his experience. And he says, I perceive not that God has shown me. I say this so that you can understand that you don't need to feel like you have to become a robot or unemotional when life starts to toss you around. You don't need to pretend like it doesn't have an impact on you, like the things that are happening are not affecting you. We have to be honest with who we are. It is a natural response, but we can't linger there. So, where should we linger? God not only knew about the storm, He was the cause of it. God caused the storm. And if He caused it, then it has a purpose. But then the word of the Lord came to Paul in verse 23. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms a little further. And they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms and fearing that we might run on the rocks. They let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, have taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God. In the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lined the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. So here it is. After having the vision promising that they will be saved, Paul says these words. Take heart. In other words, have courage. Trust what the Lord has spoken. Notice, though, that he tells them. That you will only be saved if you remain in the boat. If you get out of the boat, you will not be saved. There is this merging that we have to understand, and it happens conversely, where there's this merging of the word of God. There's a merging of God's sovereign plan over our lives. But there is also this merging of our own obedience in what God has spoken in God's sovereignty. The word comes to Paul. All of you will be saved, but you will be saved only if you obey what I have spoken to you. That's interesting. Obedience to what God has spoken, regardless of the situation. I don't care how dire it is. I don't care how bad it looks. I don't care that other people are compromised or are capitulating. Obedience to what God has spoken is a necessity. And so for us, no, nobody's getting a direct revelation anymore, all right? The canon is closed. The Bible has been written. God is not speaking to us directly because he has spoken to us in his word. And so for us, we must always refer to the scriptures. What am I to do in life? How am I to go? What does the word of God say? Seriously, can you imagine being in a dire situation and someone coming to you and saying, but have heart and trust in the Lord? I bet you can. Some of us in this room have been there. Some of us in this room are there right now. Some of us have been in the boat, we've gotten that diagnosis. We've lost that family member. We lost that job, that income. When we feel like we are being beaten up by the storm, we feel like we've been abandoned at sea. Where do we go? Do we go to our idols? Do we go to our little pets, the things that bring us care? Do we go to our sins? Where do we go? John 16, 33 says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So how do we survive in the storms of life? We must remember the word of God. What does it say? In this life, you, me, we, we will have hard times, people. We will feel pressed. We will feel crushed. We will feel abandoned. We will face tests. We will see trials. We will see tribulations. But like Paul told them, we can take heart. But what can we take heart in? Not in the temporary revelation of the word that comes from Paul. We can take heart in the fact that Jesus has already overcome the world. What does that mean? When the world was against him and when it seemed as if he was defeated, he defeated death, hell, sin and the grave. How can I take heart? Because if Jesus can overcome the world. Then he's strong enough to help me overcome anything that I may face. Especially if he's the one that calls me to face it in the first place. Finally, verse 39, it says, now, when it was day. They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes, they tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks, on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all safe, brought safely to the land. When it was all said and done, God's word was true. Now, look, this is the interesting thing. God's promise to them is you will survive. None of you will perish. But look at the end. I want you to look at the means and look at the end. If before they had gone on that journey, They have been told the only way you're going to survive is you're going to have to swim in a sea during a storm. And if you can, you're going to hold on to planks of your broken ship in order to survive. Do you think they would have said, you know what, don't even put me on the boat? Probably. They probably said, you know what, don't even worry about it. If that's the means, then I don't even want to face the end. If many of us knew the means of our sanctification ahead of time, we would all probably renege. We would say, you know what, God, don't worry about it. Sanctification ain't that important. I don't need to trust you more. If I knew that it would be this or that, you know what, don't even worry about it. But see, if we trust that Jesus Christ is truly raised from the dead, if we trust that he has already overcome the world, that he has conquered the last enemy. If we trust all that happened. And if I'm looking with foresight to an end, which is eternal destined with him, eternity with him forever, with no end in sight, then I don't care about the means. I don't care if I got to go through hell as long as I don't go to hell. That's it. When it is all said and done, the word of the Lord is true. He fulfilled what he said. So how do we survive the storm? It ain't got nothing to do with us. It ain't got nothing to do with Paul. It ain't got nothing to do with a boat. The only way we survive is that we remember that we serve a good, holy, righteous and just God whose word will not return to him void. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, you have given us the word not to just show us about what has happened, but to show us who you are. To show us about your goodness, your faithfulness, your righteousness, your holiness, your sovereignty, your perfect plan, which goes before us, God. Lord, if we knew all the things that would happen in life, not a single one of us would want to go through it. God, if we all knew just the means, none of us would even think that the end would be worth it. But God, you have shown us in the word, in your word, that you are not just the God of our end, but you are the God of our means. God, it does feel sometimes like we are coming up the roughest side of the mountain. God, it feels like every obstacle that could be thrown in our way is thrown in our way. God, it feels like the law that says if a thing can go wrong, it will go wrong. It feels like that, God. But the only thing that gives us hope, the only thing that gives us joy, the only thing that gives us contentment is that every obstacle that is placed in our path was placed there by you. And that every obstacle, God, in his own way, is showing us you. Showing us your goodness, your holiness, your righteousness, your perfection and your sovereignty, And that in your grace and your mercy towards us. You are molding us and you are burning off the rough patches in our life. God, the places where we don't trust you like we should. God, the places where sin is invading our life. You use storms and trials and tribulations to show us you and then show us us. And so, God, we beckon you. If we are in a storm right now, if we are facing A crisis in our life, God. That we would know you. That we would know you. The power of our salvation. God, if there's anybody who feels like they are rudderless, adrift at sea because they don't know you. They don't know that you have sovereignly orchestrated a plan. They don't know that you have overcome the world. They don't Know that. God, let this be the day they come to know you. God that you bore on the cross the sin debt that we owed, that we could not pay, you poured out your wrath on Jesus, and that if we reject that great offering, that wrath will be poured out on us for all of eternity. But in the moment that you reveal yourself to us, we will repent, turn from our sins. And believe the gospel. And that will give us our only everlasting hope. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.